was only when the private sector came on board that the level of government ambition raised, because so much of global economic activity is in the private sector. Name is Tanya Dos Santos, and I'm the global head of sustainability. And welcome to this focus talk on climate change in the wake of COVID-19. COVID has certainly revealed the depth of a humanitarian crisis and has been a painful reminder of the precariousness of human life. This has also incited a renewed interest in one of the greatest challenges of all time, and that would be climate change. Today, we are fortunate to have Lord Mark Malik-Brown join us to discuss these issues. Mark has led global development efforts at the United Nations Development Program and was also a member of Gordon Brown's cabinet. Um, he also served on the World Bank um, and was vice president and vice chairman of the World Economic Forum. He is also an Investec board member and the chair of our social and ethics committee at Investec. Mark, in fact, how long have you been with it, working with Investec? Well, last half dozen years now, time flies. Um, and Tanya, you've been an inspiration throughout that time because you've really championed this, been championing this issue from the, certainly the day I joined the bank, but I know before. So it's great to talk to you today. And Mark, I think the issues that we were discussing 10 years ago um, have greatly evolved um, across that time from uh, you know, a much more simple narrative to a much more complex situation that we're in now. Um, but I still feel that people don't necessarily understand the depth of what climate change means. So could you please, just in simple terms, um, explain to us what the difference is between weather and climate change and what really is driving global warming? So since the mid-20th century, the world has started to get suspiciously warmer at a much more rapid rate. And indeed, it's become quite clear that it's man-made emissions uh, which have contributed to that acceleration of what we call climate change. Now, you know, one of the easy fallacies is to equate climate change with hot weather. In fact, what climate change is about is adding to the temperature in a way which generates weather extremes and weather events. So, you know, at the moment we have these terrible uh, fires in uh, the Western United States. There were similar fires in Australia a little under a year ago last, last Christmas. And above all, we're seeing a threat to a lot of traditional areas of, of, of life because of rising water levels. So it is a convulsive set of changes which are likely to impact where we grow food, uh, how our economies work, how we live in dramatic ways everywhere. Um, so we really do feel um, the impact of climate across our operations. We have a presence in South Africa, so we're experiencing drought, but at times we experience severe flooding. Um, and we have a presence in Australia, and they had a horrific time earlier this year with the fires. So we thought it was very important as part of our climate strategy to not just go off on our own path, but to actually follow and commit to a global purpose, a global movement. For us, uh, signing up to the Paris Agreement is a real demonstration of our commitment to a low-carbon transition, and certainly that effort to show that we are serious about our role in this transition. 
And one of the things which made the Paris Agreement uh, five years ago in 2015 so important was the private sector got on board. And it wasn't just governments, companies uh, align with the goal of at least cutting the rise in temperature to 2%, but most companies have said to 1.5%, which is the much more sensible goal is between 1.5 and 2% lies all kinds of weather extremes. And no, I, and I absolutely agree with you. We, we certainly do. However, we do require much more um, participation from other players. So I was wondering what your thoughts are in terms of um, the regulators and government and, uh, you know, in terms of how, what could they be doing to help encourage and accelerate action on climate change? Change. Both South Africa and the UK in their different ways have actually been leaders in climate change. One of the big, first really big conferences of this century, which sought to link development and the environment, was held in South Africa. Uh, and, you know, I attended it as the head of the UN Development Programme. And under your then environment minister, there was tremendous leadership around this uh, agenda, uh, trying to really show that it wasn't just about protecting nature, it was about protecting human life and the quality of development available to people. You know, I think Investec, in this sense, is in the right two geographies uh, in, 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 in terms of its bases, because, you know, we, we, we have sympathetic governments in both places that do yeah. believe in this agenda. And, you know, I, I, and, and it's, you know, what, what really works is when, you know, government sets a regulatory level playing field and shows that it's committed to climate change. And then the private sector marshals behind that. But it was only when the private sector came on board that the level of government ambition raised because you know, so much of global economic activity is in the private sector. And particularly so much of the sort of emissions uh, part of that activity is in the private sector. So everything from transportation, airlines, shipping, uh, to manufacturing processes, to how we generate electricity for our homes, across the private sector decisions around innovation and transformation to, to, to new business models lies so much of the collective outcome around uh, climate change as to whether we're going to be able to arrest its worst impacts or, or, or not. You were on the Business Development Commission, which identified you know, an immense amount of opportunities. The SDGs are something that you and I are both very, very passionate about. Um, so tell us more a little bit you know, about that. Well, I and Paul Pullman, who is my kind of partner in crime on this, were particularly keen to do was to expose these CEOs to the argument that, you know, getting their companies' business strategies aligned with the sustainable development goals, which obviously include climate change very centrally. Um, this is where future business prospects are. There are 17 of these goals, but if you take you know, if, if, if you take agriculture and food systems, if you take transportation and urban issues collectively, uh, and you, then you, you, you take renewable, the transition to renewable energy, and finally, health service delivery, we, we were able to identify $12 trillion of business opportunity. And just to kind of contextualize that, so we're talking about a really close to a 15% jump uh, in global GDP, 
offset, of course, by transitioning out of some, some older industries, but nevertheless, a huge quantum leap uh, in global economic activity. And what were these, what kinds of things were these opportunities? Well, if you take uh, transportation and, you know, we saw that we were moving from an economy around car ownership um, to a sharing economy and that those companies which had the foresight to be forward-leaning enough uh, to sort of jump on them were going to be the companies with really exciting futures. And what we then found was that this sort of vision of companies through their business models contributing to all these broader goals of a better quality of life and a more sustainable life for people everywhere in the planet were companies which in all the research were holding on to their staff more effectively. This isn't both about business, it's about the quality of the people you have, it's about their sense of motivation, and it's actually also, let me whisper it, about being able to premium price your products because the consumer too uh, buys in to these purpose-driven brands. And so ultimately it's about shareholder return and performance, and it becomes a virtuous circle. As a company, when you take a stand um, for these types of issues, and they're generally, you know, generally in the inequality space and climate change space, um, you put yourself out there to be criticised. Um, what is your advice for companies on how to deal with these situations? There isn't a company in the world which ultimately is its share price and its corporate reputation isn't at risk of somewhere, someone doing something which is out of line with that culture uh, and which brings, you know, damage across the whole enterprise. And I think it it's really shows why, you know, getting every single individual in a company aligned with the vision and purpose is, is so critical. I can't agree with you more. And I mean, that's, that's something that, um, you know, we're working on as part of our sustainability strategy. Uh, you know, first and foremost, have your own shop in order. We were very fortunate. We, we got some great advice from one of our stakeholders, and that was to go and engage with as many people as possible and get lots of perspectives on this. Um, and I think that was one of the best things we could have done. All of a sudden this year, in particular, just after the, the DeVos um, uh, you know, weekend, suddenly, in fact, during DeVos already, some of the big financial corporates started coming out with um, announcements around their net zero commitments and carbon neutrality status. We've been very fortunate that we have been on um, that journey for many years. Over the last 10 years, we've been able to reduce our, our operational carbon footprint by 52%, even though our headcount went up, um, which meant you, it was that much easier to commit to carbon neutrality. You know, it's a very ambitious goal and is not going to be met just by sort of cleaning up um, the emissions of existing business models and technologies. It is going to require a big transition. And, you know, what is striking is how many of particularly the European energy companies have committed to this uh, in the wake of, you know, financial investors, insurance companies, which have huge portfolios of stock holdings in, in energy and other companies, you know, uh, had already made such commitments. So we are hearing a lot about the introduction by the Prudential Regulatory Authority introducing the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, otherwise known as the TCFDs. Um, and we're hearing a lot about how that is going to link the critical element of finance 
to climate. They're looking at assigning um, risk weightings to fossil fuel investments. Um, for existing fossil fuel investments, it would be 150% capital on your balance sheet. And for new fossil fuel investments, it would be 1,250%. And then we made a very conscious decision to align our efforts with the TCFDs. What are your views on stranded assets and, and how we need to be approaching um, our investments when it comes to climate change? Under the last Bank of England governor here, Mark Carney, you know, it went through some kind of Damascene conversion almost from, you know, a view that, you know, climate and environment issues were important, but, you know, they were a sort of area of voluntarism and corporate social responsibility to a recognition that they were absolutely critical to businesses' survival, that businesses that ignored this were condemning themselves to a short-term life. He demanded that through that investment lens of long-term sustainability, companies look at their business models. In our case as a bank, you know, that we look at who we're lending to and we satisfy ourselves uh, that their business models have a long-term future and are not hostage to changing attitudes towards climate change. And now it, it, it is a selective journey because there's going to be a dependence on oil in our both our, our economies and in the global economy for a very considerable time to come. And then you have gas, which is you know, viewed by many as this kind of transition fuel. But I suspect increasingly you will see that capex coming from either large oil and gas companies' own uh, revenue generation or increasingly from private investors or state uh, investors out of particularly Asia. And you're going to see less and less public market uh, investment in these kinds of sectors, reflecting growing political concern uh, about the damage that these fuels are doing to our shared planet. So um, I think back to when we first started on our journey, um, you know, we had put together a coal policy a few years ago, being um, so immersed in, in the coal debate in South Africa. And, uh, you know, within a very short space of time, the, the, the stakeholder activism has put pressure on banks and financial institutions to extend that. To be honest, when we first started our engagement, the rating agencies were not looking at this much at all. And certainly not from a financial valuation perspective. And I think for me, that's that, that they're still not doing enough. And um, there's a lot more that needs to be done from a rating agency perspective. But the result of all of this engagement was a much more comprehensive fossil fuel policy that covers coal and oil and gas. Our main strategy is to work with our clients. We're telling them we want to work with you in this transition? How can we help you to transition your business? Because this is a long-term perspective. I think, you know, we are at a real pivot point, a watershed moment when more and more corporates are embracing this. And actually, COVID-19 tragedy that it is has nevertheless, for different reasons, accelerated that transition. You know, it's been such an extremely difficult time um, with, you know, countries and um, countries all over the world focusing on survival and, you know, protecting jobs, protecting lives. So, Mark, my question is, everyone is talking about building back better. So, building back better is critical from a sustainable development perspective. What does building back better mean and, and how do we go about it? 
Well, look, I, I, I think, Tanya, in the first sense, it means, you know, where, where is government going to put its financial incentive and regulatory stick in terms of use of recovery funds? Probably most notable is the EU funds, some 750 billion euros, which, you know, really do, um, you know, comprise a strong green component and sit, you know, at the heart of, you know, what will also infect their trade policy. Europe has driven a lot of this. You get the US, which is, you know, at the state level, very clearly in about 20 plus states, pushing, you know, a, a policies which are consistent with the Paris Agreement, whereas federal Washington, this particular White House, remains for now in a very different position, and that obviously may likely change in the US elections in November. And you've then got, you know, the developing world, which is sort of a bit, and emerging markets, which are a bit all over the place on this, where, you know, you've got the issue of, of you know, financial survival. And then while the lockdown is now eased, the economic impact in an economy like South Africa has got a lot longer to run as it does even in a developed economy like the UK. It's no mistake that COVID came from animals to people. Uh, and, you know, in a world which has tripled in population size three times in my lifetime, you know, where it's a three times bigger world than, it, than the one I was born into, you know, you're going to see these kinds of systemic threats to our well-being. And so to achieve the SDGs, it's not a matter of doing more of the same. It's, it's reinventing, you know, all the systems on which we live and work and depend uh, to create, you know, an economy which is more sustainable. And you know, this is a universal agenda and everybody will get on it, but we'll probably move at somewhat uh, different speeds as we go forward. You've been so passionate about this for for a long time. Um, what what is it? You know, what is it that keeps you going? You know, nothing happened or very little. We made such small incremental steps for such a long time. What has kept you going um, to get to this space? Well, you know, actually, it 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 has a bit of a sort of South African legacy to it. Uh, at the age of eighteen. Uh, like many generations of students since I took a gap year. And in my case, I went to South Africa because partly in search of the roots of a father who died when I was much younger. And, you know, Africa is this unique continent because it shows people and nature, you know, in combinations that you almost don't see anywhere else and the mutual dependence of one on the other. Uh, and so it gave me a very holistic vision of development where, you know, I am driven first and foremost by wanting to make better lives for everybody in the world. And this sounds trite perhaps, but I'm thrilled that it's ended up with a board seat at Investec because I do see Investec as a bank and a group of people who share that vision that yes, we're in business, but we're in business to make the world a better place. Mark, I think that is the perfect note to end this discussion. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time um, to share with us and with our clients. Thank you. Thank you, Tanya. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.